everyone, I'm uh, glad to be in here and get another chance for us to spend some time in the Word. I'm really excited about getting to eat with everyone today. So if you forgot, um, and we, listen, we want everyone to come. We're going to have plenty of food. So whether you brought food or not, what, we don't care. We want you to come and enjoy eating with us across the street after church. We'd love for you. If you're visiting, we'd love for you to j- join us. We should have plenty of food for us all to eat and hang out together. So please don't miss us having that that kind of church fellowship and eating together and getting to know people. So we'd love for you to join us. I'm really excited about that. Um, We haven't done that in so long. I mean, COVID just shut all that down for us for a couple years. So this is really our first chance to get to do it in years. And I I am really excited because one of the things that's awesome about the church, God's plan for the church, is that she was together all the time. She was eating meals together all the time. She was building relationships and studying the word all the time. And and we've been so distant. I don't want to do that anymore. So we're going to try to wait in and engage eating a meal together. Uh, Don't just eat Spend time with people, talking with each other, meet someone new, learn some stories about them. Um, hopefully it should be a good time for all of us. Okay, let me jump into our, our passage. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. And listen, we've been doing this series for, it's been a long time. This is actually my 17th sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, we're chipping away through there. And as we get into this, I just want to remind us of something. Um, that our mission as a church is to make followers of Jesus that represent him well to every man, woman, and child. What we want is is we want us, and I want you and all of us to know and love Jesus so that we can represent him well to everyone around us. That's the mission. It's for us to know him and love him, to love one another so that we represent him clearly and accurately to all those around us. We, we want every man, woman, and child in Tallahassee to have repeated opportunities to encounter that good news. And, and I believe that's going to happen through us. And that mission has very serious implications for us as a church. It, it means this. It means that the church is not a building. This is not the church. The church is not a meeting space or an event. Uh, That's not what the church is. The church is not a corporation. The church is a people. And what we are right now is we are a church that is gathered together. The meeting is not the church. You and I, we are the church. And after in a little while that we're gathered right now, we're going we're gonna to scatter throughout the week. And that will be quickly or long, depending on how long I take in my sermon. But soon we'll, we'll be scattering all over the place. And, and the mission for the church is not only what we do on Sunday morning. The mission of the church is every day of the week. It's Monday through Saturday. So when the church scatters throughout the week... What we do Monday through Saturday matters for the mission of the church. And and part of my concern is that for too many churches and for too many people, game day for the church is Sunday morning. This this is the big show. This is the dance. What we do when we gather is literally all that matters. And, And Monday through Saturday doesn't really matter. What matters is that you show up on Sunday morning for game time and watch the game happen with the players on the stage. Well, what matters for Sunday morning is that we show up and that um, the worship team does a great job and the pastor delivers a great sermon and we all feel great and we head out there Monday through Saturday and come back and do it again on Sunday. But, but I want you to know that I strongly disagree with that. Okay? I strongly disagree because that is not at all what we've seen not even once in the book of Acts as we've been studying it. Not once have we seen that Sunday morning is game time. 
Actually, I think we see something totally different. I think what we see is that game time for the church is Monday through Saturday. She is the church all week long. She's together all week long. She's worshiping all week long. She's studying the word all week long. And she's reaching people far from God all week long. And game time is Monday to Saturday. And if I'm going to stick with that illustration, our gathering Sunday morning is our locker room talk. It's our pregame speech. It's our halftime thing. It's our postgame wrap-up. This is halftime. This is pregame. This is not the game. And I, I just want to paint a picture for you. I just want you to imagine if, if your favorite team acted the way churches act all the time. I, picture FSU. I'm assuming that's your favorite team. I know for some of you it's not. Just go with me on that one. All right, Gator fans, let's not be stubborn about this. But just, just picture that, that FSU is getting ready to rumble and you find out that the head coach is spending all of his time, he's spending hours and hours and hours and hours making sure that pregame speech is perfect. I'm talking like he's got illustrations. He's got a real win one for the Gipper thing that's about to be kicking in there. He's brought in the best hype music, the most state-of-the-art locker room you can ever imagine. Even the hallway running out to the field is millions of dollars of lights and smoke. Okay, maybe that one's too close to home. Anyways, um, literally they're spending all this money and all this time and all this energy to make sure the pregame speech is the best pregame speech ever. That's all he does. That's all he plans all week long. And they get together in the locker room, and it is, it's phenomenal. Like, it's, it's an unbelievable pregame speech. And all of a sudden, they go out, they run out. Everyone leaves that locker room. They are pumped. They're ready to rumble. They cannot wait till the halftime speech. Because that pregame speech is unbelievable. Next week, I can't wait to see what he says next week. But, but game time starts, and there's no offense, there's no defense, there's no plays, there's no strategy. They're not even all on the field. Like, they're eating hot dogs in the stand. They're eating popcorn. They're laying down on the 20-yard line, picking daisies. Like, like hey, coach, like, can you imagine the coach is coming off at halftime, and the ESPN reporter is like, hey, I, hey coach, you, do you have any thoughts on um, what just happened out there? And he's like, listen. I've been working on this halftime speech. I've got this illustration that is going to blow your mind. I've got literally the best band in all of Tallahassee. And we're, we're going to get in there and we're going to encourage everyone and we're going to pump them up. And we come back at that second half, I'm telling you, you're going to see a brand new team because I'm going to motivate the snot out of them. Okay? And then, I don't know why I keep saying snot out of it. That's bad during COVID. I apologize. Um, like, I'm going to motivate them like crazy. See? That was much better. Um, that's what we're going to do. Listen, how many weeks of those shenanigans where there's no adjustments, no changing, no real coaching happening, how many weeks do you think it before that head coach is looking for a new job? Think he makes it three? Like, it would be a record for the fastest Frank. We didn't hire you to do really good pregame speeches. We hired you to coach a team for game time. And churches, goodness, listen, churches, what we are doing all the time is we spend all our focus and energy on the pregame talk, on the halftime speech, and Monday to Saturday, we're missing game time. Listen, if a team focuses on the locker room and doesn't focus on the game, they will lose every single game. Every single one of them. I promise you they, will, they won't win a one of them. Not a single one. They'll be owing everything, okay? That's what's going to happen to a team that focuses on the, the locker room. But, but if a team, all they do is 
focus on the, on the game and they never have good halftime speech, never have good time coaching, they're not going to do as well. Like, w- both of them matter. That's what I'm telling you. The pregame speech, the halftime adjustments matter as much as the game Monday to Saturday. And so here's my game plan today. This morning I have an agenda. This morning we're going to have some locker room talk about Monday to Saturday, okay? So I'm going to try to, to coach you up or, or teach you so that when we leave here today, that tomorrow morning when game time starts, we're ready to get on the field and actually get after it. All right, that, that's my game plan. So having said that, let's review what's going on in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, here's what's going on. The gospel's been spreading all over the place, and uh, it's, it's gotten to this church in Antioch, and it's the first place the gospel's really kind of going to the Gentiles. It's saturated Israel, and this church in Antioch, they, they're praying, and God tells them, send your two best leaders to go on a mission. Send Paul and Barnabas. So verse 3 of Acts chapter 13, that's exactly what they do. Let me read this to you. Then after fasting and praying... They laid their hands on them and sent them off. They didn't wait. They didn't delay. They just said, God said these two are supposed to go. They're our best leaders in the church. We're doing it anyways because he's in charge, and there's a mission. There's a game that we're in, and we've got to send those two to a different part of the field. And so that's exactly what they do. God says go, and they send them on their way. And and so here's what happens. Here's what I love. Look at where they go first. Verse 4. So there's Paul and Barnabas. They've also got this guy named John Mark with them. In verse 4, so they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they went down to Seleucia. That's about 16 miles away from Antioch. It's a big, it's a big port town. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. That's about a 60 mile, 60 miles sailing is what they did. It's not very far. It just took them a couple days probably to get there. And when they arrived at Salamis, that's the major port in Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So let me just hit pause. So when I first read this, I always had this picture that here's what happened. God says, go, and they say, okay, where do you want to go? And he goes, go to Cyprus. And they say, okay, and they go to Cyprus, and then they go through the island, and then I thought it was just this thing that God told them, but, but nowhere in here do we see God telling them to go to Cyprus. We see throughout the book of Acts, God's told them to go to all the Gentiles. So I couldn't figure out why they picked Cyprus until I was flipping through some verses in Acts, and I saw this. Remember, it's Paul and Barnabas. The first time we meet Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4. Let let me read this description to you of of Acts chapter 4. This is why I think they chose Cyprus. Joseph, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Look at how it describes him. He's a Levite and a native of Cyprus. Let me tell you what I think is happening here. I think Paul and Barnabas have this mission from God to take the gospel to as many Gentiles as possible. And here's what they did not do. They did not say, okay, what's the center of all the Gentiles? Well, it's Rome, the biggest city, the most influential city. Everything, all roads lead to Rome. That means all the roads also lead away from Rome. Rome is the place that we go to. We go to Rome right out of the gate. We spread the gospel in Rome and let it spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. That was not Paul and Barnabas' first step. Their first step in engaging the mission, this daunting mission that was way beyond them, is I believe they took the easiest step for entry into the gospel. Barnabas is sitting there going, well, I'm from Cyprus. I know tons of people from Cyprus. I I have connections in Cyprus. I'm a Levite. I used to teach the Bible in the synagogues 
in Cyprus. I've got family there. Let's do the very first step. The first step they took was the easiest step, the the step that had the most access. And and here's the coaching I want to give you. Here's what I think happens to us, church. I think when I talk to you about reaching your neighbor or your coworker or people in Tallahassee, you immediately think of the crankiest neighbor that you have in your neighborhood. You think of the guy that flicks you off every Sunday morning as you drive to church. And I, I hope you don't have that neighbor. Okay, and what I'm telling you is, listen, you're paralyzed because you're looking at the most daunting task. Just hit pause. We will get to the cranky guy later. But you take the very first step. Who are your friendliest neighbors, your nicest neighbors, the neighbors that are probably willing to come over to your house for dinner without yelling at you? Like, you see what I'm saying there? Like, I think sometimes we get frozen because we think, oh, man, i got to go to the hardest people out there. And I'm telling you, look around. Look around your areas of opportunity, and I want you to take the very easy first step. So let me lay out what I think your areas of opportunity are. And I'm going to give you an assignment that I want you to do when you go home today. Okay, I use the phrase, live, work, learn, and play. Y'all heard me say that before? Live, work, learn, and play? You haven't? Okay. Uh, I've been saying it, you haven't been listening. Fine. Um, Here's what I mean. I'll take a piece of paper, and I want you to write, live, work, learn, and play. All right, those are the four areas I want you to look in your life. These are your areas of opportunity for engaging the mission. You're going to look at your neighborhood, where you live. You're going to look at where you work. You're going to look at that whole work environment. Where's your opportunities for mission in your workplace? We're going to look at the places where you learn. Where do you go to school? Where do your kids go to school? Where, does it, where are there opportunities where you learn? And then where are the opportunities where you play? Okay, now play is the things you do for fun, the things your kids do for fun. You're running around all the extracurricular activities. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Live, work, learn, and play. And I want you to write those things down on a piece of paper, and I want you to actually think of three to five ways you can engage in each one of those areas. So for live, what are three or five either names of people you can invite over or three or five ideas in your neighborhood, in your work, where your kids go to school, or where you play. All right, does can, can y'all do that? Okay, now, some of y'all right now, I appreciate someone raising a hand. I appreciate that, Trey. That, that, that's how you interact, guys. When I do that, I'm looking for some kind of, nah, this is locker room talk, right? Okay? This is not the big show. This is how, I got to know you get it, right? I need you to make eye contact and tell me, I'm with you. I know what you're talking about. Okay? Now, now here's what's going on in my head right now. I'm afraid that even that, you're picturing writing down the name of three to five neighbors, and you're like, uh, that, that list is going to be zero because I don't know anybody's name that lives around me. Like, oh, you're sitting there going, I'm thinking about work and I'm retired and that doesn't work. Whatever area, you're looking at it and that sheet is going to stay blank because you're going, listen, man, I don't, I don't know about this. Like, there's something that feels like that's too far removed. Well, let me coach you up and tell you what is happening in your mind. When people get saved as adults, they often reach tons and tons of people for Jesus. Let me tell you why. Because all their relationships, all their connections, all their friendships, everything is all wrapped around people who are far from God. And when they get saved, they're just talking to all the friends they already have. I mean, they're reaching people left and right for Jesus. But what happens is after you've been following Jesus for a while, you get deeper and deeper relationships in the church. You also either reach your friends or maybe they walk away from this whole thing. And and your relationship with those who are far from God starts to get more and more distant. And it will actually get closer and closer to zero. 
So the longer you've been a follower of Jesus, you probably have fewer and fewer relationships with people who are far from God. You just you spend all your time with church people. You spend all your time, like, you, you, you start getting distant and more insulated. And here's what that means for you. The longer you've been a Christian, the more intentional you have to be about living on mission. Let me say that again. The longer you've been a Christian, the more intentional you're going to have to be about living on mission. It, it's, it doesn't just happen. And here's what we don't want to do. Here's what churches do all the time because they don't want to have to be intentional. We put on big events over and over and over again. Our plan for reaching people only is VBS. Our plan for reaching people only is bring in a Christian comedian and see if we can get them in here. Our plan for reaching people only is to bring in a big band. I'm, I'm not saying there's not value to those things. But instead of equipping the church to reach their neighbors and coworkers and friends right where they live, work, learn, and play, we let you all off the hook and we bring a show that you just got to get people to and that's how we reach people. That, that cannot be our only option. We, we cannot do that. So I'm telling you, you, you we've got to find ways to engage right where we live, work, learn, and play. So, so I want to coach you up on taking that easy first step for you. I'm going to go by a few groups. I'm not going to coach everyone up. I'm just going to co coach up some of my main groups. Students, let me just tell you, you're probably swimming in unsaved opportunity of reaching people with the gospel. Okay, I, you're swimming in it. Whether you're at a Christian school or a public school, I'm telling you right now, you have unsaved friends all around you. And I'm just asking you to, to pray and ask God to lead you to three to five unsaved friends you can spend time with, okay? That, that's all you got to do, students. That, that's... Is that easy? Yes. Okay, I heard a yes. We'll go with that. Here's, here's my next group. Single people and retired people. All right, if you're single and or if you're retired, here's what I want you to do this week, okay? I'm going to ask you to do two things, all right? My single and retired people, I want you to get a hobby and I want you to get a ministry. And you're like... Okay, did he just say hobby? Yes, I said a hobby. Let me, let me explain. Like, okay, you're retired. I know that people imagine you've got tons and tons of free time and you're sitting there going, I'm busier in retirement than I was ever, I ever was when I was working. Am I retired people? Are you with me on that one? Take that as a no. Okay, well, I'm going to pretend like you feel like you're super busy. I'm telling you if you're retired, I want you to do two things. Get a hobby and get a ministry. Let me explain what I mean by a hobby. Listen, if you love gardening, good grief. I'm not asking you to add more. I'm just saying go find a group of people that love gardening and hang out with them. If you love woodworking, then find a group of people that do woodworking and hang out with them. If you love RVing, find a group of people that love to be in an RV and talk about your grandkids and go find ways to RV together. Like I'm telling you to do the thing that you love and leverage it for mission opportunity. That's what, if you don't have a hobby, find one. Okay, and, and don't make it like my hobby is sitting alone in my house watching TV. That's not the hobby I'm talking about. Uh, whatever it is, stamp collecting, I, I don't, I'm trying to imagine hobbies. I should have written some examples down. I, if you love singing in choirs, find a community choir and join it. Like just find a hobby and get into it. All right? And the reason I say ministry 
is, listen, I think it's good for you. You need to have something to invite people to serve alongside. Find a ministry. If you have a passion for crisis pregnancy women, you go volunteer. Just pick one day a week at a women's pregnancy center or the Phi Center. If you care deeply about people in poverty, just pick one day a week and say, every Tuesday, unless I have a doctor's appointment, I'm going to go visit and serve at the Kearney Center or one of these places that are serving people who are in need. If you're retired, find a hobby and find a ministry. And listen, let me give you permission okay, because you're retired. You don't have to work 52 weeks a year in your hobby or in your ministry. Why don't you just plan on saying, I'm going to take 12 weeks off a year and visit my grandkids. Is that, that reasonable? And look around for ways you can engage people far from God in your hobby and in your ministry. That, that's what I want you to do. Get a hobby, get a ministry. If you're, I'm sure you already have hobbies. Just jump into it. Families, I'm going to give you two instructions, okay? First, if you're a family, here's what I want you to do. First of all, you've got to get in community. You cannot do this alone. If what you are doing is you're running around in busyness and there's no moment that you're actually not just showing up at church but connecting with other people in community in church, you can't do this. You've got to have a community, and here's why. You need a community of people that are going to encourage you when you get tired, that are going to keep encouraging you to know and love Jesus, or, or I'm telling you, the wheels will fall off. You need a community of people that are going to help you serve in the areas that you find. Uh, ministry opportunity. You need a community of people that you can invite your unsafe friends and unchurched friends to come and engage with. That, but you need to get in community. And the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to look around at your kid's school or your kid's sports. I'm asking you to look around and look for opportunity at your kid's school or your kid's sports. So you're looking around and your junior's into soccer and junior loves soccer and you're always in soccer, 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 soccer. Okay, just listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a way to leverage soccer and build relationships with those families. Invite them to dinner after a soccer game or go grab a lunch before soccer practice one day. Like, like do something that uses soccer as an opportunity for you to build relationships with people who are far from God. If your kids love basketball, then before the basketball games and you're traveling who knows how far to go to the, that game, make a plan to carpool with other parents. Make a plan to eat dinner after the game with other families. Like, like leverage those things for the mission. If, if your kids are at school, find a way to serve the school in a way that builds relationships and lets you leverage that for the gospel. It doesn't matter what school. It doesn't matter if it's North Florida Christian School or Gilcrest or Leon or Lincoln. Like families, wherever your kids are at, you are there to be salt and light and look for ways to leverage those to build relationship and share the gospel. Okay, let me, let me give you a couple examples of what that would look like. Uh, when you get together, I want you asking questions to learn their stories about where do they grow up, what was their family like, do they go to church anywhere. Like you can even invite people to some crazy church events. Like say next time we do trunk or treat, you can invite your friends or neighbors or soccer buddies or whatever to come and help you do a trunk and say we're just going to hang out and hand out free kids as many candies as possible. Free candy to as much kids as possible. Don't hand out kids to candy. That's weird. Um, we're going to hand out candy to as many kids as possible. Like whenever we sit there and do things like an Easter egg hunt, that's great to invite your friends to bring their kids and do, do that. If your Sunday school or small group is doing a Super Bowl party, make sure you set it up so you can invite your 
people who are far from God as friends to come and watch the Super Bowl with you. That, literally, that is the first step of living on mission, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Listen, uh, uh, that's not too hard for you. It, that, that isn't. Don't believe any excuse or lie that will tell you otherwise. This is actually pretty easy. Your, your first step into the mission is very easy. Just like Paul and Barnabas picked Cyprus, I'm asking you to look around where you live, work, learn, and play, and literally try to engage there. And if you get stuck, let's talk. You can email me or call me. We'll set up a meeting, and we'll, I'll coach you through it or pastor you through it, and we'll brainstorm ways to engage in one of those areas where you live, work, learn, and play. So that, that's step one for you. And some of you may already be out, and I can't help you with that because that's the game. If you didn't want to play the game, I'm sorry, that, that's the team you're on. That, that's what Jesus has called his church to do. So, so let's see what happens there. So Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus. They, they go to this, this island they're familiar with, and, and they get busy pretty quick. Look at verse 6. And when they'd gone through the whole island, that's, in case you're wondering, that's 100 miles long. That's a lot of walking. As far as Paphos, they came to a, upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, so now this is going to get a little weird. They've got this false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That's a crazy name. Let's keep moving. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul. That's the leader of that area for Rome. His name is Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So, So here's what happens right out of the gate. They're going around and they're spreading the gospel. They go through 100 miles of of this entire area, and then all of a sudden there's a religious leader, not a religious, a political leader that hears about Paul and Barnabas, like, I, I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear that good news. And so what happens? They go to talk to him, and look at what happens in verse 8. But Elymas, that's also Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, well, you know this, don't be surprised. When you engage the mission and you start sharing the gospel with unsafe friends, you will face opposition. Okay, it, it's going to happen. When you wade into that, you're wading into a war for a person's soul. And there will be resistance and opposition. This is not persecution. This is not someone saying mean, something mean to you. This is someone trying to keep someone else from hearing the gospel. I don't want you to be surprised when it happens. It is going to happen. When you engage the mission, you will face opposition. When that happens, just know that's very normal for living on mission. And it may not be some crazy guy like Bar-Jesus or whatever his name is, Elymas. It, it might be something else. But you are going to face someone that's trying to steer the person away from Jesus. So, so how do Paul and Barnabas respond? I need you to buckle up because look at what Saul does here. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. That word means he just starts staring at him. He's like staring at this Bar-Jesus dude. He's like, oh, okay, you want to roll, bro? Like, okay, just right out of the gate. I'm not telling you to do this at work, all right? Just, can we just go ahead and say you're sharing with the gospel with someone at lunch and all of a sudden the waiter comes up and you're like, you. Like, don't do that. I'm just, just trust me, don't do that, okay? Staring at him intently, verse 10, and he said, <laughs> you son of the devil. Okay, this is, he's so nice, okay? He's so it's like Twitter. It's Twitter in real life is what this is. It says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, 
full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Okay, just let me hit pause. Can I just be honest? If we were all hanging out around lunch and you had an unsaved friend, and uh, all of a sudden I look at their other friend that's next to me, you son of the devil, like, would you be uncomfortable with this approach? Okay, good. I, me too, okay? Let me, let me just tell you, uh, this is really intense. And then look at, look at what else Paul does here. Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay, so let me just go ahead and say this. Uh, I'm immediately asking myself this question. Hey, Paul, uh, isn't there a nicer way to go about this? Can't you just say, hey, you know, Sergius, can you and I just go talk alone away from Bar-Jesus? Like, no, no, listen, why does Paul get so upset in this moment? Let me be real clear. In verse 8, what did it say that Bar-Jesus was trying to do at the end of it? It says this, he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This was not a guy that was just disagreeing and letting this happen. This guy was actively engaged in keeping his friend from knowing and trusting in Jesus. Now, now I don't believe many of us will ever face this situation. I, 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 don't, I don't see Paul doing this a whole bunch of times in the Gospel of Acts. You're not going to be sitting down with your friend sharing the Gospel and someone's going to be coming and going, no, 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 do not listen to Fias. They're, they're lying to you. Stay away from this Jesus stuff. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Like, you're not going to have that happen. If you do, apparently you should deal with it directly. I'm just going to tell you that. There are times when there will be someone steering away from Jesus and you don't want to just be passive and let that moment go away. You must directly and honestly deal with it. I'm not saying you got to try to strike the person blind like Paul did, but I am saying we do not sit by quietly if someone is trying to actively keep someone from placing their trust in Jesus. Does that make you nervous? I, sometimes I don't know if I have the courage for that. I don't know if that's the, the most wise thing to do, but I'm telling you, in this example, what Paul clearly saw was that a man's soul was on the line, and he was not going to quietly sit by and let this happen. There are people who would try to steer people away from Jesus. In, in all reality, you're probably not going to face this. Here's what you'll probably face. You're going to face that someone has a YouTube video they looked up and watched, or they, they get shared with an Instagram person that's an influencer, and they're posting these videos, asking these questions about whether or not Jesus is part of the Trinity or all these other things, or they're going to have a book or an article or someone's going to invite them away. That's probably what you're going to face. You're not going to face an active person that's literally stepping in between. You're going to face an invite or an article or a video because there's plenty of false teachers around there. And so I, I ask myself the question, how can I help my people get ready to identify and deal with false teachers without a massive blow up like this? And so here's what I did. I went through the Bible and researched a whole lot of things about false teachers. And, and I want to summarize some of it because you are going to come across this if you engage the mission. Here's the first thing I want you to see as I'm summarizing or trying to summarize all of what the Bible says about false teachers. Number one, they can be hard to identify. Okay, they will be hard to identify. They will not show up and go, listen, I'm a liar, I'm a liar. That, that's, 
That's not a good lie. Good lies are not obvious. It's a good lie when it's mixed with a whole lot of truth. These lies, these false teachers, they'll drop just a little bit of poison in your food. It's not going to be all poison. It's not going to be obvious. It's going to be hard to spot. That's why Jesus referred to them in Matthew chapter 7 as wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They smell like sheep. They're hanging out with the sheep and you can't tell it, but inside they're really wolves. They're hard to spot. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15 say this. He's describing false teachers. Look at how Paul describes them. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. Look at what he says here. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see this? Like Satan's method is not to show up to you with a a pitchfork and a red tail and little horns being like, listen, I got an evil plan. Are you in? That's not how it works. He looks like an angel of light, like a messenger of good. He looks good and right and true. It's not obvious you may think that when the devil's working things, you're going to see someone standing and their head spins around. And they, no, 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 listen. He looks, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Listen, it's going to be hard to find these people because they're going to look just like really good Christians, really good Sunday school teachers, really good deacons, Really good Baptist pastors. That freak you out? Freaks me out a little bit. That's what, that's what we're going to do. They're going to be hard to identify because they look like real sheep. The other reason they're hard to identify is they sound good and make good arguments. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that we should be careful not to be deluded with plausible arguments or taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. They're not just saying stupid things. What they say will actually make sense. They're hard to identify because they look like sheep. They're hard to identify because they sound like sheep. And here's the other thing. They're hard to identify because they tell us what we want to hear. The Bible describes it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 saying that we will be people who have itching ears. And we'll gather teachers to ourselves that tell us what we like. Listen, they're going to be hard to see because you're actually going to want to hear what they say to you. It's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel better. It's, it's not going to make you feel convicted or guilty. It's going to be flashy and showy. So if they're so hard to identify, what are we supposed to do? Well, I'm going to, again, I'm summarizing a lot of Bible. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said that we will know them by their fruits. You're going to know them by, by the result of their life, by the things that they do. And you need to know this. That means that some false teachers will take a long time to reveal themselves. It may take years, and they may sweep many away with them. But, but here's what, what I think a one uh, commentator says. His name is John MacArthur. He said this. No, no person, no matter how clever and deceitful, can indefinitely hide a character that is rotten and out of tune with God. Or John Calvin said this, Nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. 
it demands too much. Like no matter how much they try to pretend, eventually they cannot counterfeit authenticity and purity and love of God. It will come out. So sometimes you're going to have to take time and wait and see for the fruit to show itself. So they're not only hard to identify, there's something else about false teachers I want you to know. They're going to use a lot of different methods to turn you away from God. Let me, let me outline some of them. They'll try to distract you with, they'll try to turn you away from God with distraction. So 1 Timothy says they want to focus on myths and genealogies and details about the law, even little words. In 2 Thessalonians, they used end time focus to get people distracted from what they were supposed to do. That they will use anything to distract you. I think the one of the day right now is politics. Politics is the one that is distracting the church left and right. Let me give you a couple examples. And these ones are just the most shocking examples that's plain as day. But these people all have big churches. One church in Birmingham uh, put this on their sign. And this is what I believe is distraction from what God has called us to do. He said this. On his church sign out front, in the midst of everything, he's trying to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And he decides the best thing to do is this. A white vote for Trump is pure racism. A black vote for Trump is mental illness. That's a church. Or, or worse. If you think it's one side of the aisle, it's the other side as well. There's a church, First Baptist in Dallas. Uh, they wrote a song for Donald Trump that their choir sang entitled, Make America Great Again. That's their church worship service. You, you need to hear me. There will be wolves that will distract you from the mission of Jesus with any trick they've got up their sleeve. And we will run to it laughing all the way, loving every single bit of it because it makes us feel good. That is not what preachers of the gospel do. They point you to Jesus, they lift him up and his good news, and they have us get engaged the mission for every man, woman, and child, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status or their political party. Listen, wolves will distract you. That's how they'll turn you from God. They also use other things like to use license. In other words, like to downplay sin and repentance. That's all throughout the Old Testament. What you see in the Old Testament is every time prophets came to Israel and said, listen, you need to repent, turn to God, you're going to get judged. False prophets rose up right next to them and said, Jeremiah said it this way, peace, peace, when there is no peace. No, God's not going to judge you. You're fine. He loves you just the way you are. Second Peter describes false teachers like crazy, and his main emphasis for false teachers is that they are sensual. In other words, what they want is they want to lead you down a path of immorality. There, there are false teachers that will turn you away from God by telling you they want you to be free to express yourself sexually. And there are churches all over. That there, there's one church I know about, they actually encourage engaged couples to move in together and sleep in the same bed before they get married. Listen, that, that's a false teacher that's leading you into sin and away from God. There's others, there's plenty that will not just, they're not just encouraging patience and grace and kindness, but there are false teachers that are encouraging people to pursue homosexuality and gender fluidity. You, you need to hear me, that is not the way of God. A, a true 
pastor and true people of God will love and serve and be patient and share the gospel with everyone, but they will not lead you into sin. So they'll turn you away from God with distraction or with license. The other side is they'll try to turn you away from God with legalism. They'll overreact to the license guys, and they'll come over here, and they'll give you all sorts of things you're supposed to do. That's all of Galatians. They will add circumcision or rules or all these or church attendance or communion or baptism. They'll add all of these things to salvation. They'll, they'll go after your diet. 2 Timothy 4.3 says these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Listen, I've seen this in Baptist churches all over the place. Uh, at the last church I was at, we had this group called the Torah class. You know what they did? All they did was story, study the Torah, and they actually they got really upset every time we celebrated Easter and Christmas because they would only celebrate, this is insane, they only celebrated the Old Testament festivals. I mean, these dudes would build booths in their backyard. They started teaching each other not to eat pork. They were so focused on all these rules, they totally missed Jesus. Those are false teachers. You can find it in Baptist churches, and you can definitely find it in Catholic churches. There's others like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Listen, I know I'm getting feisty, but I need to make sure you know where they're at. They'll teach you to deny who Jesus is. They will steer you away from God by telling you that Jesus isn't God. There's tons of things like that. There's another group that distracts you and de detours you from Jesus with dreams and big personalities. They use dreams and visions. You need to check out 2 Peter 2 and Jude for this. They get very arrogant about demons and angels. Like they, they're very authoritative. This is found in places, I'm naming names this week. Uh, this is normally found in the very radical charismatic movement. Places like Bill Johnson at Bethel. And listen, it, I'm just... These people are false teachers, and they will try to get you away from Jesus, and it will sound good. And let me tell you what their end goal is. In the end, they want to use and abuse you. They're going to tell you, hey, if you send your $50 seed, seed gift, God will give you a miracle. And they will pray on the rich and the poor alike. They don't care how much money you got as long as you're willing to give it to them. They will pray on the sick who are dealing with cancer and say, fly out here and we'll pray for your healing and, and they'll wreck your family. They'll use you for money. They'll, they'll use you for their own. Look at how many people are here. They will promise you miracles and blessings and your best life now. These are televangelists like Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen, and I could give a long list of these snakes. Those ones are a little bit more obvious. But the ones that aren't obvious are the ones that will show up in your Baptist church, and, and they'll, they'll enslave you to legalism, and they'll devour you and take your money and take advantage of you. Let me, let me read 2 Corinthians 11.20. He's telling the church, listen, what you're putting up with these false teachers, and look at how Paul describes their treating the people of the church. For you bear it. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. Listen, I, I wish I didn't have story after story after story of people who have been in churches that were basically under spiritual abuse. They will wreck you and they will own you and they will use you. Those are false teachers. 
But real followers of Jesus, we love and serve one another. We worship Jesus and we take the gospel to every man, woman, and child. So don't be surprised when false teachers pop up when you engage the mission. Don't be surprised that you encounter every crazy type of teaching known to mankind. But I want to get back and see how this story ends. Because I want to see what happens when Paul's sharing the gospel and some dude acts like a lunatic and he drops a bow on him and makes the guy blind. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. And look at this huge thing here. Four. Here's, here's what he believed. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I want you to hear this. It wasn't the miracle that made him get saved. It was the gospel. And I, I want you to know this. You don't have to walk out of this room in power to reach your neighbors. The power you have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what will win people. You don't have to get it right. Your house doesn't have to be perfect. Your strategy doesn't have to be perfect. When you leave here, you have the spirit and you have the gospel. And it is the gospel that saves people. Church, I want you to be bold and courageous as you step out. As you look at places where you live, work, learn, and play, know this. You step out in faith, not faith in your ability, not faith in your plan. Faith in the power of the gospel to change lives. I want to encourage you this week as you try to get into the game. Do it in confidence that God will show up and use you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to take a quick moment and I want you to kind of wrestle with what God would be calling you to today. Did you feel like he called you to actually get in the game? And if you've been sitting on the sideline, I just want to encourage you to, to get in the game in whatever way he would call you. For some of you, you've already been engaging this. Can I just encourage you to pray for your unsafe friends right now? Listen, and others, you're hearing all this stuff, and I, it would be a huge mistake if I didn't just let you know. Man, you may have been invited here by a friend, and the thing you needed to hear today was actually what the good news is. And here's what the good news is, that Jesus said he... He loved us, and while we were still sinners, while we were still broken, he came and died on the cross for our sins. And the Bible says that he actually, God brought him back from the dead, and he offers us forgiveness and wholeness and relationship with him if we would just repent of our ways and ask and trust in Jesus to forgive us of our sin and, and go to his way. It's trusting in him and his work on the cross, not in your effort. Listen, if that's you today, I just want to encourage you right there in your seat, would you just ask Jesus to save you? In a moment, I'm going to pray. But at the end of our service, um, you know, uh, the pastor will be down front. If you need to speak with someone, we'll, we would love to talk with you. Uh, if you need help getting in the game, we would love to support you in any way as possible. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, you see the unsafe people all around us. That's who we were. And God, I pray you would help us to engage people with the good news where we live, work, learn, and play. I, I pray you, you would have every person in this room feel empowered by your gospel and by your spirit. 
to actually engage in the mission that you have for us. And God, we don't want to be proud or arrogant about it. We need you. So I pray you would help us to be faithful in this task. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.